Okay, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to Me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when they entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This has got to be the most amazing week, or just over a week, in the entire history of the world. It's a time of culmination of so many things. In fact, this this day where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey was predicted back in the book of Daniel because it's a pretty amazing thing. But God through Daniel pinpointed the exact day that Jesus would come riding into Jerusalem on this donkey and presenting Himself as King. You know, it's kind of an amazing thing when you look at what happened in this time period because the Jewish people have been waiting for this King. They are underneath the rule of the Roman Empire and they hate it. And they've been so looking forward to the King. You see it in the disciples. Even when Jesus would tell them, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to be, I'm going to be put to death, and then I'm going to rise again from the dead, the disciples would say, okay, now about the kingdom. When the kingdom happens, can one of us sit on your right and the other one on your left? Or, or who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? They'd argue about that. They're so focused on the kingdom. And here comes Jesus riding in on the donkey to present Himself as King, and they totally missed it. Because their conception of what it should be was not what it was. And so they missed it. Now, why, why did they miss it? I mean, when you think of what he was, you got this guy that's been able to cleanse people of leprosy, make lame people walk, blind people see, he's even raised a few people from the dead. He's been able to calm storms just at his command, multiply food to, to, to feed a large groups of people. Why in the world wouldn't you want that guy to be your king? But instead, you know what the religious leadership's response was? Take, for example, like with Lazarus. Lazarus died. And I think Jesus is also kind of using some of this to bring it to a boiling point. But Jesus, uh, when He finds out that Lazarus is sick, He waits for Lazarus to die. And then He comes and visits Lazarus' family when Lazarus is four days in the tomb. And when He comes, He tells His disciples that the reason He's doing that is so that He would be glorified. And He says, open the tomb. And He calls forth Lazarus. He raises him from the dead. He comes out of the tomb very much alive. You know what the response of the leadership was? Now we need to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Because people are starting to believe because of Lazarus. So we've got to get rid of him too. Now, I don't know why when this guy already died and he's back to life, your mind would naturally go to, let's kill him. Didn't seem to work the first time. I mean, they didn't kill him the first time, but he already rose again. Maybe that's not going to work. And if the guy that rose him from the dead, your answer is to kill him, well... You could have seen all this written out, right? I mean, he's going to come back from the dead. But that's their response. But the point is this. Their king came to them, just as Scripture told them, humble, riding on a donkey, and they completely missed it. They, they blew it. But you know what? The same thing is still happening today. Jesus is still getting presented as the king. 
And all over the globe, the gospel message is going forth. Here's the king. Here's the, the king of the Jews and the savior of the entire world. And people are still missing it. They're still missing it. And so what we're looking at here this morning is the arrival of the king. And the question that I kind of have is when the king arrives, what is he looking for? What is a proper response to the arrival of that king? What we're going to take our answers from is the unfolding of the several days in that week where they missed it. We want to make sure we don't miss it. Where they do wrong, we want to make sure we do right. Not everything that happens in this week is wrong. Some of it is right as well, and we want to learn from those also. But as we consider this idea of the arrival of the king, I want to find six proper responses. Now, this is no way exhaustive of this passage, but I think it is a good rough outline. Six proper responses to the arrival of the king. The first proper response to the arrival of the king is what we see right in this passage, and that is that it is a time of worship. Jesus comes in. He doesn't come in on the big white horse. He comes in lowly, meek, and riding on the donkey. And he comes in, and what happens? The people begin to worship. They're shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the Son of David. The Son of David connects them to a covenant that was given to David. David was promised that it would be his descendants upon the throne in Israel, in Jerusalem. They're recognizing that and they're crying out for this praise and worship to take place in regarding Jesus and His entry into Jerusalem. He's definitely one that is worthy of the worship. They recognize it as being a fulfillment of the Old Testament. In verse 4 and 5, it says this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He wasn't riding the, the, the glamorous steed that shows off all the glitter of the office of a king. Actually, Jesus comes in on a beast of burden. And what, what is he saying with that? The animal that carries your loads. This isn't the one that you put in the parades. This is the one that pulls the wagons. This is a servant. As we see Jesus coming and presenting Himself as their King, He's coming as a, as a servant. Christ told them that on other occasions. That the Son of Man, He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. And so we've got this king that actually puts us first. That, that is worried about what he can do to benefit us, to save our souls, to, to, to bless our lives and to give us life. And so we have this one that is very worthy to be worshipped. And then later on in the same chapter, when we get beyond what we read, we find that there's a tumult over it. The children gather around Jesus and they're worshipping him as well. And the religious leaders have a real problem with that. It says, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. Right there, that's that spot. When they saw the wonderful things that he did, and they hear the praise and the worship going on, you would think it would be they joined in, and but no, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And so the first response when the king arrives is worship. When he's riding in on the donkey, they start taking their coats and lay them on the road. It's like rolling out the red carpet. But they don't have any red carpet prepared or anything, so they're taking their, their coats and they're laying them on the ground. And that only gets them so far, so they start breaking off 
branches off the palm trees and laying those on the ground and they're and they're waving palm branches and they're saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. And so they're worshiping him. The religious leaders of that day missed out on the most awesome worship service you could probably ever have. If they would have put their faith in Christ and got behind it, can you imagine the worship that would have happened all across Jerusalem? But instead, they start to try to submarine it and they start to try to take it down. And they get their way. And by the end of the week, rather than yelling Hosanna to the Son of David, they're going to be yelling, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Very uplifting indeed. But it had to happen. And as a fulfillment of God's ultimate plan to bring our salvation. So when the King arrives, what should our response be? Our our response should be one of worship. But secondly, we also need to recognize that it's a time for cleansing. It's a time for cleansing as well. The Bible talks about Christ coming into our life and the old things pass away. All things become new. There's a cleansing that takes place. In fact, it's a cleansing that's ongoing. The Bible tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we find that we blow it and we, we fall into sin or we, we step into it willfully, we need to bring that to Christ and confess our sins to Him and acknowledge those before Him and be cleansed from those things. When Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem, He performs a cleansing. In verses 12-14 through 14 of Matthew 21, it says, "...and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and lame came to Him in the temple, and He healed them." And so Jesus comes in and He cleanses the temple. Now this is the second time that He's had to do this. He did it early in His ministry and He does it again late in His ministry here. When you think about the temple, right in the middle of it is the Holy of Holies. That's the house of God. God's presence is symbolized as resting there. And inside that is the mercy seat. And only the high priest can go in there in only once a year with a sacrifice. And there's a curtain over that. That's the curtain that got torn when Jesus died. Outside of that, then you have the holy place. The other priests can go inside of that. And then you have the court of Israel. And the court of Israel is divided into the court of the men and the court of the women. And so you're just getting kind of progressively bigger. And then the overall footprint of the temple is the gates and the walls around the outside. And that outer area, inside the walls but outside the court of Israel, that's the court of the Gentiles. So if you're a Gentile person and you've proselytized, you've become... a Jewish by faith, but you're still Gentile by ethnicity, then that was your area to worship. And so when you come in the gates of the temple, you're in the court of the Gentiles. Then if you're Jewish, you go into the court of Israel. If you're man, you go to the court of men. Women, court of the women. If you're priest, you go to the holy place. And then the holy of holies, only the high priest enters. So it's more restricted access the closer you get to God. And that's the whole point of this whole thing is access to God. Jesus is coming to tear that curtain to provide open access To God. Well, when Jesus comes into a temple, which is in itself a picture of Him, what does He find? Well, the religious leaders aren't overly too concerned about the Gentile people, apparently, because inside the court of the Gentiles, which is their place to worship, their place to pray, their place to sing, their place to worship, He finds that they're selling animals for the sacrifices and they're exchanging money because people travel from all over the known world at that time, to come to Israel to celebrate the Passover. And it's easier to buy a sacrifice there than to bring one with you. Also, you need to exchange your money to be able to pay your temple tax that was collected at that time. 
And so they sent up money changing tables. They were doing all that at, I'm sure, a great profit and made a real fundraiser out of the whole thing. What was supposed to be worship became a big fundraiser. So if you can imagine going into the court of the Gentiles and wanting to try to find a place to pray, and you find people conducting business, exchanging money, buying animals. You hear the animals making all their noise and the mess that comes from those things. And what a wonderful place to worship. And that's what Jesus finds when he gets there. And so what does he do? He flips over the tables and he drives them all out. And in place of it, you find healing. People start coming into the temple not to buy their animals or exchange their money, but come in to find healing and hope. And that's exactly what Jesus provides for them. Israel had allowed things and even brought things in willfully that corrupted their worship with God. You know what? When we allow sin into our lives, we corrupt our worship with God. It doesn't take away our standing as far as when we're in Christ. When you believed in Christ, you still are God's child. You can't take that away. But it does damage our fellowship. You cannot have free and open fellowship with God and comforting fellowship with God if if you're harboring sin in your life. It just doesn't work. I think about when I was a kid. When I was a kid and I'd done something wrong that day, I wasn't looking too forward to Dad getting home at the end of the day from work. Is he going to disown me? No. He's not going to disown me. But I wasn't looking forward to him coming home. Why? Because I'd done something that would damage the fellowship, damage the relationship. And that's what it's like. When we trust in Christ, or when we have the arrival of the King, or we look at relating to Him, we need, there needs to be a cleansing that takes place. And kind of a continual cleansing that takes place that keeps us right with God and in a good, solid relationship with God. When the King arrives, it's a time of worship. It's also a time of cleansing. As well, it's a time for honesty. It's a time for honesty. This really isn't a place for hypocrisy. Did you know that's probably the number one complaint about the church is hypocrisy? I do think that a lot of times when people use that as a complaint against church, I think that itself is an easy out. I think it's a cop-out most of the time. Because I've found that when I talk to people and they say, well, a church is full of a bunch of hypocrites, well, several thoughts go through to my, my mind. I think, well, the grocery store, they probably go there too, but you don't stay away from that. I also think I've been a part of churches for most of my life now. And I find churches to be places where sincere people are trying to worship God and they're trying to do better in their lives and they're trying to raise their families and they're trying to stand for the truth. And do you have some hypocrisies within the church? Absolutely. I can't say that I don't have some hypocrisies in my own life that I struggle with from time to time. But can anybody say that? But I find the church to not be a place of hypocrisy. I find it to be a place of, well, I think some openness and some sharing. I think some some reality is what I experience here anyway. Do I ever put up a front? Absolutely. I think we just we just tend to do that. But I put that up everywhere, not just here. But Jesus is calling the people of Israel at that time and us today to just honesty. Being honest with who we are. We, we see it in several different ways throughout this week. In chapter 21, verses 18 and 19, it says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And the disciples, they go into town, they come out later, and they notice that fig tree is completely wiped out. And they're amazed by it. And Jesus uses it for a lesson on faith. But you know what? I want to point at what happened just in this passage here. He goes up to this tree and he curses it. Why does he curse it? He's giving a lesson to his disciples. And what is the lesson? You look like you have something of value, but it's just looks. You don't actually have the fruit. 
And so he's using this fig tree as a lesson of Israel. He was, or of Jerusalem. He's marching into Jerusalem. And what will he find in Jerusalem? He will find a lot of religion. He will find a lot of shininess to their religion. A lot of fancy clothes and prayer garments and cloaks and, and lots of long-winded prayers and lots of, lots of religion, but it was all show. At one point in his ministry, he would tell the religious leaders, he says, you're like a whitewashed tomb. All clean on the outside, dead men's bones on the inside. You're like a bowl that somebody washed the outside, but not the inside. Which part of a bowl is the important part? <laughs> the inside's the part you eat out of. That's what the deal is with the fig tree. It's hypocrisy. And then also we find later on in the chapter, he says, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe in him. Yet the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe in him. So he gives this story. He's going on to make the same point. He gives this story of these two sons. And the father comes up to the sons and he tells one son, go out and do this chore. And the son says, no. But then he got feeling kind of bad about it and he went out and did it. He went up to the other son and he tells him, go out and do this chore. And he says, yeah, but he never puts down the video game controller or whatever he's doing and goes up and does it. He just doesn't do it. And so he says, look, in the end, which of the sons did it? You see, the Pharisees were the group that we look like, oh yeah, we're doing it, we're doing it, we're, we're godly, we're doing the right things, yes, Father, but not doing anything. But he says, look at the tax collectors and the prostitutes. You guys didn't repent at the preaching of John, but they did. And even after you had their good example of them repenting and and leaving their sin behind and coming to Christ, you still did not get on board. A little after that, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to His disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens and hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. So Jesus says, look, they have the the words of Moses. In other words, they have the Bible. And so when they read the Bible, they tell you what the Bible tells you to do. Do that. Do what the Bible tells you to do. Do what they're reading for you from in the synagogues. But don't follow their example because they won't do it. They will heap the burdens upon you to do it, but they won't do it. If there's a show to be had, if they can put on a demonstration through some of their things, then they'll do some things, but it's all for, it's all for show. And Jesus had warned us earlier in His ministry. He says, if you do it all for show, then you're doing it to impress others instead of God, and you already got what you were after, so God's not going to give you anything. He would go on from there to blast the Pharisees seven times. In the rest of the chapter, he would come up and and just say, Woe to you! He'd pronounce this woe seven times on the scribes and the Pharisees. And most of the times he would refer to them with the same exact line, all except for one. Say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That little phrase is repeated six times. And the seventh time, it says basically the same thing, but he just uses different words to get there. And so he pronounced woe after woe, upon these Pharisees. Why? Because of their hypocrisy. When the king arrives, 
He's not looking for a bunch of fanfare and religion. What he's looking for is honesty. People that are willing to get honest with their sinfulness and turn away from it. People that are willing to just get in an honest relationship with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, and not be trying to put on a show. Honest with our struggles. Honest with our weaknesses. Honest with who Christ is. It's a time of honesty. But then also, it's a time for love. In chapter 2, verses 35-40, through 40, it says, In one of them, a lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So this lawyer comes to Jesus and asks him his question, which law is the greatest? And Jesus says, well, I'll, I'll give you two. He only asks for one. These two are kind of inseparable. When you look at the law, take the Ten Commandments, for example. The first four commandments have to do with honoring God. And then the last six of the commandments have to do with how you treat your neighbor, how you treat your brother. So Jesus says if you boil it down to these two commandments, it fulfills all the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things, all the law hangs. Well, not only is it a time of love, but we see also that it is a time of faith. When we get up into Matthew chapter 24, the disciples start the conversation with a, they're thrilled about the temple and the building there in Jerusalem. And Jesus tells them, you know what? Don't get so caught up in the building. Not one stone's going to be left upon another. That would actually happen in AD 70. AD 70, Rome would come through and sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple and the city. And they came through and looking for gold and silver and jewels and stuff like that having to do with the temple, they literally overturned every stone in the place looking for profit. But they got the disciples' attention. They say, okay, when? When that and even more importantly, your kingdom? When are you going to set up your kingdom? And when is the end of the age? Well, Jesus begins to answer them that question. says, as He sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All things are but the beginnings of birth pains. You know, I don't know if it stood out to you, but one of the things that stood out to me on the, the covering of Russia attacking Ukraine and coming to Ukraine is so many people in the news are like, I thought we were beyond all this. I was like, when did you, when did you ever get the idea we were beyond all this? The 20th century saw more wars, they figured, than the whole history of the world combined. The wars have been growing, and uh, all of a sudden people are super shocked. Uh, we have a short memory if we're shocked by this. But Jesus says that's what you're going to see. You're going to see there's going to be birth pains, wars, rumors of wars, pestilences, famines, these different things. It's going to grow into persecution. Include that as well. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for My name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so the point that I want to make with this is it's a time where tremendous faith is required. Jesus said, look, there's going to be, things are going to grow worse and worse. There's going to be birth pains of these wars and rumors of wars, tribulations uh, that are going to take place, persecutions that are going to take place, all these things. And so we want, when the king arrives, it's going to require great faith. You want to know why? Because as Jesus told his disciples, look, the world has hated me, it's going to hate you. The world is, going to, is killing me, it's going to kill you. Eleven of those first disciples, and Judas thrown out because of his suicide and uh, his lack of faith. John, tortured but not killed. Uh, the rest of them, all from what we understand, died murderous, horrible deaths at the hands of their persecutors. And so it requires faith. The arrival of the king also, lastly, is a time of great hope. Because in the midst of all that love growing cold and all the persecution and, and being hunted down and, and the tribulation and the wars and all of these things, the pestilences, in the midst of all that thing, there's going to come a time where Jesus says in Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. There's going to be this time where there's going to be a falling away and there's going to be all this coldness and there's going to be the persecutions and all those things. But then, just at the dark moment, you know what's going to happen? Here comes the Son of God. And He's going to come and He's going to deliver you and He's going to rescue you. And we're going to have this bright and this glorious future. And so even though it's a time of you need great faith to stand in that time of trouble, is a time of great hope because you know what's coming just around the corner. And then we also see hope spelled out for us as He sits down with His disciples and has the Last Supper. In Matthew 26, verses 26-29, through 29, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. And He took the cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of its fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. You see that at the very end, that hope. And it's awesome because He reaches back into the past and He connects the past and the future in this one act. Because they're sitting at the Passover feast. They're celebrating the Passover meal. And the Passover was a beautiful picture of Christ and the animal being sacrificed and the blood on the doorpost to cover the Israel and it protected them from the judgment of God and the death angel coming over as God delivered them out of Egypt. And they're celebrating that feast which pictured Christ. And He takes the elements of the table and said, this is My body. So it connects the past to the present as He's sitting right there with them. And He says, and you know what? As we take these elements and we partake of them, picturing what I'm about to do for you, which was forecasted through the Passover, which I'm about to do right now presently, and I'm not going to eat it with you again until I eat it with you new in my Father's kingdom. He connects it to the future. And so even in this feast and this time, He says, look, about what I'm about to do now is going to provide for your forgiveness of sins, which is going to give us this, this meal perpetually in the future in my Father's kingdom. 
And so it's a time of great hope. Well, when the king arrived in Jerusalem, the Jews who had been anticipating it, longing for it, looking for it for centuries, completely missed it. Many people today are still missing it. For us, we want to make sure we're experiencing it correctly. As we do, the proper responses, it's a time of worship where we celebrate who God is and what He's done for us. It's a time of cleansing where we constantly evaluate our life and make sure we're keeping those things out that will detract from our relationship with God. It's a time of honesty. It's not about religious show. It's about relationship with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He did for us. It's a time of love as we learn to love one another deeply and love God with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our might. It's a time of faith as we stand strong in times of adversity and in times where we don't quite see the clarity of the things that are going on around us and we just trust in Him. And it's a time of great hope because we know that just around the corner, even in a, what do they say, it's always darkest just before the dawn, even in our times of darkness, uh, just around the corner is that time when Christ comes back and sets everything right.